0: Our speaker today is award-winning investigative journalist Joseph Rosenblum. He holds a BA in history from Stanford University and a JD from Columbia University Law School. He's been a staff reporter and editorial writer for the Boston Globe, an investigative reporter for Frontline, and a senior editor and features writer for Inc Magazine. Mr. Rosenblum has contributed freelance articles to a range of magazines and newspapers, including the Boston Globe Magazine, International Herald Tribune, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The American Lawyer, and The American Prospect. For his work as an investigative reporter, Mr. Rosenblum has received a Sevalon Brown Award, a George Foster Peabody Broadcasting Award, and an Emmy. This afternoon, he will discuss his book, Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours, which chronicles the last 31 hours and 28 minutes of Dr. King's life. Redemption draws on dozens of interviews that Mr. Rosenblum conducted with people who were immersed in the Memphis events and features recently released documents from Atlanta archives to reveal previously untold facets of the story. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Joseph Rosenblum to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: Thank you, uh, Hannah, for that introduction. Thank you all for coming. Um, It's a particular pleasure for me to speak here at the Athenaeum. For one thing, I'm a member. And for another, uh, what better way to celebrate the publication of a book than to have the opportunity to speak here at a place that's so utterly dedicated to uh, reading and learning. So I I thank you all for coming. So I'm told that I should speak for about uh, 40 minutes, and then I'd like to hear your questions. Uh, Look forward to those. Um, So uh, I have brought along a few um, photos. These are photos from the photo insert in my book, and also even uh, fewer audio clips. Uh, These audio clips, with one exception, are from uh, interviews that I conducted, as Hannah said, in uh, Memphis, mostly when I was working on the book. So in the, um, on uh, April 3rd of uh, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. arrived at the airport in Memphis, Tennessee accompanying him were three of his close aides from the left Andrew Young Ralph Abernathy and on the right uh, Bernard Lee they had been on a f- on flight on Eastern Airlines flight 381 from Atlanta and in the uh, Atlanta airport the plane had been the target of a a bomb threat directed specifically at King. And um, passengers had been evacuated, dogs brought in. It turned out to be a false alarm. But the plane arrived about an hour late in Memphis. So the um, The bomb threat, as unsettling as it must have been, and the delayed arrival, were not King's only worries on that Wednesday morning. This was his third visit to Memphis in uh, 1968. On the first visit, on March the 18th, he had addressed a uh, rally on behalf of the city's garbage workers, who are then in the throes of a bitter strike. Back uh, 10 days later, he was to lead a march through downtown Memphis. Barely had the march begun until it turned into a riot. A small number of youth broke away from the march and uh, smashed windows and looted stores. Police responded with... Uh, with tear gas and clubs and guns. There were many uh, arrests and injuries, even one fatality, and considerable destruction to several blocks of downtown Memphis. So in the aftermath, King was being denounced widely by politicians and in newspaper editorials, They were accusing him of having lost control of his nonviolent movement. As you know, King was deeply committed to nonviolence as he staged his civil rights campaigns. And he was even being accused of having incited violence. Despairing, King decided that he had to go back to Memphis, and lead another march, vowing that the next march would remain nonviolent. So, as he arrived back in Memphis on uh, that um, morning of April 3rd, he had yet another worry. He was then on the verge of launching the Poor People's Campaign. This uh, would have been one of his most ambitious undertakings ever. He was going to lead thousands of poor people to Washington, D.C., to protest and demand a sweeping federal program to end poverty in America once and for all. That was uh, not off to a good start, the Poor People's Campaign. It was um, supposed to... uh, It was supposed to start only 19 days later on April the 22nd, and it was running behind schedule. The recruiting of volunteers, the raising of funds were way behind schedule, and King uh, was detouring to Memphis and diverting himself and his staff from organizing the Poor People's Campaign at a particularly critical moment for uh, the Washington. Um, uh, drive, anti-poverty drive. So um, it was a difficult time for him to be going to Memphis. And uh, so my book has a, uh, a lot to say about the Poor People's Campaign. Title, as Hannah mentioned, and you can see on the screen, Redemption, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours. The narrative arc of the book is summarized in the subtitle. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours. That uh, refers to that span of time between King's return to Memphis on the morning of April 3rd at 10.33 in the morning, until 6.01 the next night, when he was assassinated. So, the book is a close-up account of what happened in Memphis during that, to be precise, 31 hours and 28 minutes. It is, um, at the same time, an inquiry into what uh, King's purpose and preoccupations and pressures on him, and how he was dealing with those pressures, in the last phase of his life. The title, Redemption, has a triple meaning. First, it refers to King's resolve as he returns to Memphis to um, salvage or redeem his reputation as a nonviolent leader. Second, it refers to his determination in the spring of 1968 to redeem what he considered the promise of America, that no citizen should live in poverty. It's an idea he derived from the Declaration of Independence as it affirms the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. There's a third meaning To the title. Uh, In King's mind, redemption had a particular relevance to him. As you know, um, Jesus, according to Christian theology, sacrificed himself so that he could save or redeem all humanity of its sin. Well, applying that Christian concept to himself, King believed that his sacrifice, even to the point of death, for the cause of racial and economic justice would have redemptive value for him in a very personal and Christian sense. So how was it that that I, a uh, Boston journalist, Would write a book about King in Memphis. Well, Hannah already stole some of my thunder here, but uh, I'll answer the question anyway. Um, I'm originally a Tennessean. And the only reason I came to Boston was to work for the Boston Globe, or I might still be in Tennessee. I don't know. But um, in the summer of 1968, I um, was working as an intern for the Memphis Morning Daily, the commercial appeal. And in the newsroom, the other reporters would gab about, you know, as reporters are wont to do, would gab about what had happened, uh, their coverage and what had happened, their experience, just a couple months before when King was in Memphis about uh, the events in Memphis, surrounding King and his murder. And uh, the more I heard these stories, the more intrigued I was by them. And I thought, well, someday I'd like to go back myself and uh, look into what happened and um, see if there was more to the story. And uh, it took me a little while to get around to it. (laughs) Almost 40 years. But on visits to my, see my family in Tennessee, I stopped, because I'm not from Memphis, I'm from a city about 80 miles northeast of Memphis, uh, Jackson, Tennessee. Um, and on visits to my family, I would stop in Memphis and I would started interviewing people who, who had been there in 68 and who had had often very searing experiences. Sometimes they were the most defining experiences of their life and they wanted to talk about what happened. So I interviewed a wide range of people. Um, I interviewed civil rights activists, garbage workers, police officers, lawyers, journalists and so on and so on. More than two dozen interviews and I found that many of the stories were compelling and moving and that they did add new light to what had happened in 1968. So I eventually decided that I had the material and I'd write this book. So how was it that uh, Martin Luther King intervened in what was a labor dispute? Uh, These are public employees uh, on strike against a municipality in a Tennessee city. Well, it was unprecedented for him to do that. Uh, Yes, he had once walked very briefly on a picket line in Atlanta that was to protest uh, the uh, racial lack of uh, hiring of uh, uh, minorities at a scripto facility there. But he had never plunged so deeply into a a strike. And uh, with all of its complexities, you can imagine a labor dispute is never a simple matter or rarely... Well, he borrowed the idea from the so-called bonus march of 1932. Uh, You may be familiar with that. What happened there was uh, World War I veterans had been promised a bonus for their wartime service. The bonus wasn't to be paid until 1945, but it was in the midst of the Depression. A lot of the veterans were in dire financial straits. So they converged on Washington, demanding early payment of their bonus. It didn't end well. Um, President Herbert Hoover ordered the army to uh, rout the protesters, which they did with tear gas, and send them packing out of town. But King thought that the Bonus March could serve as a model for what he aimed to do with the Poor People's Campaign. So it helps to know about the Poor People's Campaign, which I'll tell you a little more about that, and the Memphis strike, because King linked the two very closely together. So a little more about the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, so what do he uh, envisioned was, as I said, recruiting these thousands of poor people from around the country, bringing them to Washington. They would camp out in sort of a tent city there, makeshift shantytown. And they would stage weeks, if not months, of protest. They would call on Congress and President Lyndon Johnson to enact a a far reaching, costly program to end poverty in America, not just for African Americans, but for all Americans. One provision uh, would have guaranteed a job for any American who needed one and who was able to work. It would guarantee a minimum wage for anyone who could not work. And uh, King was threatening uh, what he called massive, militant, albeit nonviolent, civil disobedience that would continue until the uh, Congress and President Johnson granted their demands. The protesters would flood the streets and executive and congressional offices and would stay in Washington as long as necessary. So, the Memphis strike. The uh, garbage workers in Memphis had been long aggrieved by very low wages and dreadful working conditions.
2: I have here... You got home in the evening, you got to take all, all those tilted clothes before you go in the house and keep maggots. You just kept maggots in the house with you. Oh, and you didn't take those... kept maggots in the house with you. Working conditions <clears throat> this, it was terrible. Lunch time you didn't have nowhere to go wash your hands, You to stand beside the truck and eat your lunch. It was, it was just pure hell. Mm. It was. It was more than the hell. <laughs> so really, men just got tired.
1: And they worked so hard. They worked so hard. You yeah. work a 40-hour week and be helping for welfare. So those were two of the strike leaders, Joe Warren and Taylor Rogers, talking about their grievances. And uh, they brought um, those grievances to the city of Memphis and uh, asked for relief. Not satisfied with the response, uh, they decided that they would strike. By then, they had a labor union, Local 1733, of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And uh, the union thought that it was going to be necessary. The only way they could get a fair hearing from the city would be to strike, which they were planning to do, most likely, in the summer of 1968. Well, it was rain that determined the timing of the strike. Uh, Rain sometimes has a a lot to say about events. Uh, You could just look at yesterday's marathon, for instance. And on the rainy day of January the 31st, the black sewer and drain workers in the Department of Public Works were sent home without pay. The white workers were kept on the job and were paid for a full day's work. On the next day, February the 1st, two of the garbage workers, E.C.O., Cole and Robert Walker took refuge from the rain in the back of a truck like the one you see here. Mechanical malfunction activated the compactor in the back, raked Cole and Walker into the jaws of the compactor, crushing them both to death. So the two events, the racial disparity in the treatment of the garbage workers on one day And the horrific deaths of Cole and Walker on the next day so outraged their fellow workers that the union leaders decided that it was opportune to call the strike. And the strike began on February 12th. 1100 of the 1300 DPW workers stayed off the job. And the strike seemed to be off to an auspicious beginning for the workers. It soon assumed the proportions of a major racial confrontation. No surprise, perhaps because the Department of Public Works in 1968 in the city of Memphis was mired in the Jim Crow era. The supervisors all white, the workers in the streets collecting Garbage, all black. And the strikers adopted this slogan. You see here, I am a man. This is a famous photograph, actually one of several, by a photographer, a legendary civil rights photographer in Memphis called Ernest Withers. There are other versions of this that you may have seen this with showing the I am a man on these placards that had a particular resonance in the Jim Crow South, because whites often addressed African Americans not as Mister or by their last name, and not as men, but as boys. So the strike was not only about a cry for better wages and working conditions and also union recognition, which the union didn't have at that point, but also it was a a plea for treatment of African-American men, African-Americans with greater decency and with equality. So the key figure in uh, determining the city's response to the strike was the Memphis mayor, Henry Lowe. And from the beginning, he took a hard line toward the strike. His position was simple. It was against the law of Tennessee for public employees to strike. And he would—he re- said, I, I won't negotiate with lawbreakers. He refused to negotiate until the workers returned to their jobs. There's a lot to say about Loeb. I don't have a lot of time to tell you too much about him, but I will say that um, Uh, there's some debate to what extent he might have had racist feelings. Uh, I think he, he, he would have been a racist by some definitions. He took a dim view of desegregation, although he gradually allowed desegregation in the city of Memphis under court order. Memphis didn't have the kind of incidents that other cities like Birmingham or Little Rock had had, but he also had a kind of a, he treated African Americans individually with, a, with respect. He had a certain southern graciousness about him. I mean, for instance, if a woman came into his mayoral office, he would always don a coat. He would never allow a woman to come in and so, when he was in shirt sleeves. And uh, he had a kind of a patriarchal attitude, a paternalistic attitude toward workers, and he was very much against unions, uh, which was not uncommon in Memphis at the time. Uh, so he um, he took this hard line toward the strike, and um, we can hear from uh, a, one of his close friends named Frank McRae, who was a local Methodist minister in Memphis, and was meeting with... Uh, the mayor during the strike, and at some point, Reverend McRae decided that um, that Loeb needed to be less rigid in his position, less legalistic in his position, that he should take a more of a conciliatory approach. So here we can listen to uh, Frank McRae describe some of his conversation with the mayor. He and I were sitting in his office. This was probably Two weeks before King was killed. And I said, Henry, you're a compassionate
2: person. Wasn't well, a political thing at all. But I said,
1: This is wrong. But you see, here was this one little preacher voice. Henry goes to the Rotary Club and speak, and man, they'd give him standing ovations. And everywhere he went, the people were applauding him, and I was one of the few minor voices that was saying, Henry, these are good people. They deserve a fair shake, and they aren't getting a fair shake. But Henry hit behind. They're breaking the law because it's against the law of duty. You cannot, you cannot strike against the city of Memphis. So LoBA decided to hire replacement workers, and by early March, about half of the garbage trucks were rolling again in Memphis. And it was clear that the strike was at an impasse. So some of the leaders in the strike support community of Memphis decided that they should invite Martin Luther King to come to Memphis and speak at a rally on behalf of the garbage workers' strike that King could bring a national spotlight to the strike and the plight of the workers' And that that would pressure the mayor to negotiate and reach a settlement on terms acceptable to the union. So the um, the invitation went forth, and uh, several of uh, of uh, King's uh, closest aides, <clears throat> excuse me, were very much opposed to his. Very much opposed to his accepting the invitation, uh, notably Andrew Young, who's one of his top lieutenants, argued uh, vehemently that it would be a mistake for King to go to Memphis. He said, uh, "If uh, if you go there now, it's going to divert you from the Poor People's Campaign. We just we, we can't afford uh, your time away from that." And second, he said that one. One talk could lead to two, and two talks could lead to three. And it would be sort of like mission creep, and you're going to get bogged down in Memphis. But King uh, re- disregarded his advice. And now, um, I, the way this is set up, when I go to the photo, you're going to hear the audio right away. So, uh, But I'll just tell you what you're going to see Um You'll see on the left, you'll see Andrew Young, and then in the middle, you'll see Bernard Lee again, and on the far right, Hosea Williams, three of the aides. So this is is Andrew Young's description of the conversation he had with King about the invitation to go to Memphis.
2: We didn't have time to get involved in another movement. He said, well, they just want me to come down and preach and that the Poor People's Campaign is about people just like this. And um, the least I can do is go down there. And his plan was, in fact, he got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, caught a 6 o'clock plane to get to Memphis, and planned to meet us back in Washington that same evening when the riot occurred that trapped us in Memphis
1: so King disregards uh, Young's advice and he does indeed go back to Memphis and he um, he does speak at the rally on uh, March the 18th he's greeted with uh, wild applause and boisterous cheers. And uh, he's so swept away by the rousing reception that at the end of his talk, he announces on the spur of the moment, he says, why don't I come back and lead a march in support of the strike? And uh, sure enough, as I said, he comes back. This shows him at the head of the march uh, you can tell from the concern on his face that he's probably already hearing windows breaking. He's already being jostled by the crowd. The crowd is already unruly. And um, he, um, he realizes that uh, there's a big trouble around him. And sure enough, the riot occurs. And this is one scene from the riot. You get a sense of what that was like. Well, as Jung said, uh, King is, uh, he's trapped. He feels trapped. He feels he has to go back to Memphis. As he does uh, just six days later on uh, uh, on April the 3rd. arrives at the airport. And uh, checks in at the Lorraine Motel. So he stays at the Lorraine for several reasons. He, by then, in 1968, the more... Uh, um, prestigious hotels that had excluded blacks till desegregation were then open to African-Americans. And King could have stayed at any, I don't know if you're familiar with the hotels, but he could have stayed, for instance, at the Gracious Hotel Peabody in downtown Memphis. But he decided that he would stay here as he had he'd stayed there before. He liked the Lorraine it was black owned. And also they catered to him. Uh, He could have room service pretty much any time. And he was especially partial to the catfish that they served in the restaurant. So he's uh, back at the uh, Lorraine and he begins in earnest to organize the march, which is now set for five days later on April the 8th. He meets with local ministers, urging their support, He meets with a a black power group called the Invaders. He's determined to recruit them as parade marshals. They're reluctant to do so unless he agrees to uh, fund their community programs. They want lots of money to do that. There's a whole story there in the book. And he also that day has to deal with a federal injunction. The city of Memphis had gone to U.S. District Court in Memphis that morning and obtained a temporary restraining order that barred King and his aides from leading the march in Memphis on April the 8th. So he had never disobeyed a federal court order. uh, The federal judiciary had always been a close ally of uh, the civil rights movement. And a valuable ally, and King had disobeyed, in some instances, state court injunctions because he thought that the federal constitution would uh, allow him to march or protest, and so he he did defy state court injunctions, but for him to disobey a federal court injunction would be a very big step for him. It would have potentially Severe implications because if he antagonized the uh, federal judges, they may no longer be as willing to uh, support his movement. And he was saying that he would not obey this federal injunction. He said, "It's so important that we that we march in Memphis. It's so important to me to restore my credibility as a nonviolent leader that no matter what the federal court says, I will march." Well, as it turned out. a a legendary local lawyer named Lucis Birch went to court the next day, at a hearing the next day, contested the injunction and the judge, Bailey Brown, agreed to lift the injunction subject to certain restrictions intended to minimize the chance of violence during the march. So this shows uh, King and, his, and some of his aides being served with the injunction. That's the federal marshal on the left, a Cato Ellis. Why are they laughing? Well, they just, they just had lunch. They may have had some catfish, I don't know. But, and they were in a good frame of mind from lunch. And also King had uh, a way of, of cracking jokes to break uh, the tension of the moment and he may have said something funny to his aides. I don't think he was sh- they were showing any disrespect for the federal marshal. Um, so that night, King uh, spoke at another rally for the uh, garbage workers. It's, uh, his, his talk that night is uh, the so-called mountaintop speech. You may have heard of that. Um, it is uh, fairly well remembered to this day, and uh, you could ask, "Well, will it be? Would it have been as well remembered if he hadn't been killed the next day? Probably not. It might not be remembered at all because uh, he gave so many powerful speeches. But I think this was one of his more powerful speeches. Um, he called on these uh, strikers to continue their." Uh, a protest until they could reach a settlement that was uh, uh, fair to them. He spoke eloquently about that. And he spoke at great length. He said that what they were doing in Memphis was part of a transcendent national uh, cause, namely to alleviate poverty in America. and He urged them to keep uh, to, to continue their strike as uh, and, as, as and and to uh, overcome whatever adversity they might face which and they did face considerable adversity so that night uh, he uh, delivering this speech in the finale he talked about his own mortality and that's the part of this, the, of, this of the speech that's best remembered he had a a dread, a deep dread that he would die a violent death at any moment. And for him, it wasn't a, just a possibility or likelihood. In his mind, it was a certainty. He thought he was going to be killed and it could happen any moment. And in this speech toward the end, he talked, I think, more openly and emotionally as he came to terms with that certainty than he ever had before. So I have here uh, just the finale of the speech, so that you can hear that.
2: And I've seen the Promised Land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the Promised Land. I'm
1: happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not feeling any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I think you get a sense of the power of those words and the emotion that he felt that night. So, those last words, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, you may recognize from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, words penned by Julia Ward Howe in 1861. It's a hymn that calls on abolitionists to sacrifice themselves uh, following the example of Jesus for the cause of freeing American slaves. Now, you can imagine that um, this idea of sacrifice to the death may have had a particular poignance for King on this night because he's contemplating his own death for what he believed was a noble cause. Uh, Julia Ward Howe, just an aside, she uh, lived here in Boston, I think in the South End for quite a while, so you may be familiar with that story. Um, So the next day, oh, I should say that that evening, James Earl Ray arrived in Memphis. Um, He checks into a motel and then... uh, he goes about his murderous plot i'm not going to say a whole lot about that there's a uh, now i mean if you want to get into more of the that james Earl Ray and so on in the q and a i'm happy to do that but i'll just say this that the book profiles ray and it also tells of his actions in memphis on april 3rd and april 4th and it describes how this man who had a record of ineptitude as a a career criminal could have benefited from a, a series of uncanny lucky breaks, now lucky from his standpoint, lucky breaks that enabled him to murder King. And one of those lucky breaks was a lack of police security for him in Memphis. And that's another whole story. I go into that in depth in one chapter in the book, but the short of it is that the police provided no protection for him whatsoever on the first two visits to Memphis on March the 18th and the 28th, and when he came back on April 3rd after the riot, there'd been even more threats against him, been threats throughout uh, the time that he was in Memphis against him, but the the threats became more numerous and more uh, dire, more serious. They provided protection for King only on that day until 5.05 p.m. when they disbanded the four-man security detail, which is all they had signed to protect him, and nothing on the next day on April 4th. And why? Well, my my best guess is that it was indifference. Uh, There's testimony by the police director about all that, and I saw the after-action reports of the police department and so on. It was indifference. They just didn't care. They didn't think that protecting him was that higher priority. So the, um, the next day, April 4th, King stayed almost, enti- well he did, stayed entirely at the Lorraine Motel. He um, was in, he met with some aides, but mostly he was in a pensive, melancholy mood. He spent a lot of the day just lying in bed, sort of looking at the ceiling You can imagine that he was sorting through all the troubles and the pressures that uh, he was facing then. He was waiting to hear what the federal judge would say about the injunction. He probably was thinking about a lot of dissent within the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, dissent not not just among his staff, although there were members of his staff who thought that He was making some mistakes then, uh, errors of judgment, but also within the board. And there was a feeling among both the staff and the board, at least among some of them, that the Poor People's Campaign was uh, a, a grave error of judgment for a lot of reasons. Also, King had a certain amount of marital discord in his life then, and he may have been thinking about that. Get into that in the book as well. So, at the end of the day, he uh, has an invitation that evening to have dinner at the house of a uh, local minister, a friend of his. And The rest of this story may also be familiar to you. He um, is in this second floor uh, room, uh, his second floor room at the Lorraine Motel. The room... Opens to a balcony, and then the balcony uh, overlooks the street, Mulberry Street outside. So it's uh, exposed to the street, the balcony. And um, a little before six o'clock, King uh, exits his room, pauses at the balcony, banners with some of his aides who are in the parking lot below, shot rings out. Strikes him in the right, on the right side of the head. Collapses at once onto the floor of the balcony. Ambulance is summoned. He's rushed to Saint Joseph Hospital, where he is um, pronounced dead at 7:05 uh, p.m. So, how to sum up uh, King's life and legacy? Uh, We could talk at length about that. Uh, You may have heard some of the discussion about his legacy uh, a couple weeks ago on April 4th. Uh, There was a commemoration of the uh, 50th anniversary of his assassination. Uh, Happy to talk about that in the Q&A if you'd like. Um, I think a lot of that is probably familiar to you. I'd like to conclude on just one point. I'd like to emphasize the depth of King's commitment in the spring of 1968 to two causes. One was he was speaking out passionately then against the war in Vietnam. And second, he was putting his heart and soul into organizing the Poor People's Campaign. And in pursuing those two causes, he was elevating his visibility more than ever as a controversial figure. And knowing that uh, as he did that, that he was exposing himself to ever graver risk that he could be killed in, in any moment. And both of those causes were controversial, extremely controversial. So I'd like to let Andrew Young have the last word here. Um, He talks about King's state of mind in the spring of 1968.
2: He had earned the reward and that death for him probably at that point in his life was a blessing because there was no way he was going to stop. He wasn't going to take a sabbatical. He was going to push it to the death. Not that he wanted to die or that he was ready to die in fact he said very clearly the, the night before that he wasn't ready to die his conscience wouldn't let him say no and you you know that at any time anything you say and yes to could mean death.
1: so the reference to the sabbatical uh, king had an invitation to be the acting pastor at the Riverside Church in New York City, and he always aspired to do that, to be a theologian in residence at some uh, prestigious ivory tower institution like that. But he declined the offer because he was determined to push ahead on the two causes that were so dear to him in uh, the spring of 1968. So thank you very much. I'd like to hear your questions now. So.